And just like the uh, few stories from when I was <laughs> in that uh, university hellscape. University hellscape. When did you? Uh, when yeah. did you graduate? When? Yeah. Uh, Twenty thirteen. From grad school. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I I took a while. Like I, I didn't graduate from my undergrad. Uh, till twenty twenty two thousand eight, and yeah, then that was political science, and then after that, uh, it was um, English, and yeah, graduated that like twenty thirteen. Yeah, I was much. I graduated MFA in twenty nineteen. I say two thousand eight, dude. That's when I was graduating high school. I'm sure you love hearing that. Yeah, that uh... Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> I graduated high school in '08. Yeah. Uh, that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's fucking crazy. And then I, I had unorthodox college too. It took me like five, six years to get through all of college, like undergrad. So I didn't end yeah. up actually graduating from undergrad until like twenty fourteen. And then, uh, yeah, I got into grad school right around 2015, started it basically 2016, and then graduated 2019. Because you had a three-year program, you said? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the same. MFA and the MA combined. So, yeah, it was three same. years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when you told me that, I was like, yeah, cool. I did. And then you're in Vegas. I was like, yeah, it's like, yeah, we should definitely get a drink at some point in, in person. I was... Everybody I meet online, I guess it's so rare when they're actually in the actual, <laughs> when they're like actually in the same city. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. No, there's only a couple people I met like online that are in the same city that are actually cool. Like, yeah, right. it's, very, <laughs> it's so rare. Yeah. There's a lot of weirdos where like I, whenever somebody does do like a reveal or something and, and, and they like post photos of like a Twitter meetup, I'm always like, <laughs> I don't yeah, know if yeah, I'd no. attend that based on how everybody's looking. You know? <laughs> I do not look like <laughs> Maybe it really is all just basement dwellers, and I'm like the one. <laughs> We're just the few that aren't. Uh... <laughs> I'm a teacher. Uh, I'm not something. Heavy. Bored. I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored. got my MA like after I got my political science bachelor's so like I kind of sort of like know knew I wanted to like write study literature like and teach and go in that direction um it's a great life if you can get it man like when I was in grad school and like everyone telling you that like you you do believe it like when you're sitting there like yeah this can be a job where you just basically talk and read books and write books all day and then like you get into the world and that's not there are no jobs of anymore for that so all the exactly jobs. <laughs> yeah that's exactly yeah. what i thought <laughs> it's like, that's exactly cool. what i thought would happen and like yeah i'm like okay yeah no there are no yeah there's no jobs in that direction at all and, i mean yeah that was I mean, that was crazy. That was sort of like the most delusional because, yeah, I, I like I applied to a bunch of places um, and I got accepted. Like, you know, I taught a class at Fullerton. I taught a class at Chafee. Um, I taught a class at Saddleback. I taught a class at IVC. I taught a class at South Coast. Um, all of them, one class each with that driving distance right. and the amount of time I had to spend on homework, like it was just like no pay for no life. Oh yeah. And that's kind of what destroyed me on that whole model. So I was like, okay, well I'll just like work at a grocery store 
and I can make just as much, but I can have a regular schedule that won't destroy me. Right. <laughs> right. And a lot of times when you have to do all those commutes, like I was commuting there a while there, yeah, back, even I said distant by Vegas here, going back and forth to Nevada State College down in like Henderson there. And like just the gas, like what I spent on gas to get there and back for like the two classes that I was teaching. You know, I was basically losing money to have this job. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I was yeah. not making <laughs> enough to justify the drive. I was like, well, I'm literally in negative money now if I'm driving to work. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, and that's just what I—I I, I mean, that's just—it's all yeah. there is now. It's all—it's—it's it's, that's what it is. When you get out of an MFA, there are two options you can take, which is to stop being <laughs> going down that path, like to be like a kind of <laughs> scholar and writer with a teaching gig, or mm. you know, forever just do that kind of adjuncting i guess the third option is try to become an internet personality like me and uh, eric here <laughs> i mean like I, the I guess third I, option. I, I mean i don't know. i just go down the option of like I, okay i'll teach elementary you know like high school whatever right <laughs> like and, and that's fine you know i i get that like i I don't know. I guess that's fine. But I mean, ideally I'd like to teach college, but yeah, again, it's very difficult. And it's also cause yeah, there's, there are some new standards in hiring. And there's just, there are no jobs. Like, like I always bring up the statistic, especially when we do this kind of jerk shop stuff with the workshop stories. MFAs, yeah, every, every year yeah. we're graduating 3000 a year. 3,000 fresh MFA grads a year, and there are less than five full-time positions available for a creative writing teacher. Like, And, you know, to even qualify for a creative writing position, you have to have at least one book, usually more than that, uh, to get a job. Yeah. You only have to have one book if you're uh, not white. Uh, <laughs> or like, yeah. What's your face? It has to be published. Uh, like, I mean, it's, yeah. And also, it depends on who it's published by. Like, I mean, that's yeah. a very real thing now. Because, I mean, I, I guess anyone could get their book published by, like, a private press now, which is right. honorable. I totally get that. I understand sure. that. I read a lot of books that are published by private presses now that people just, you know, put out on their own. Right. But that's not going to help you in an academic market. Right. You're going to need work some sort of like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They will turn you're up gonna their need nose. Like, yeah. yeah. You're going to need like an adjacent like Grey Wolf Press, uh, something like that. Um, like some sort of like indie adjacent press. Right. To get you really noticed. And. I think it's very hard without like, I mean, a lot of it's like academia will propel it up, but also social media will, but nothing that's um, really like interesting to talk about. I don't think like there are only like a few presses that I know now that will like produce great content, Apocalypse Confidential, Expat Press, um, Broken River Books. Like, so you're, yeah. uh, you're naming what the literary world calls the alt-lit scene, right? Doesn't that mean yeah, you're some type exactly. of fascist, yeah. Eric? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, totally fascist. <laughs> <laughs> this fascist book press that puts out small detective books. like. <laughs> yeah, no, any, if you try to say something to the contrary, yeah, they'll call you fascist. Yeah. 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 yeah, but no, it's uh, no. Those are where like a lot of the interesting stuff is being produced right now. Um, I think that too. I think people are underestimating the energy, and I've heard other people say this on other, you know, podcasts in that world, which is really the Red Scare, and then people orbiting around Red Scare, right? Like, yeah, all this stuff, you know, uh, you know, the rare candy guys, you and I, you. you They've had you on. They've had me on. They've been doing great shit. Yeah, we love shout out to Rare Candy. Yeah. They're uh, great guys. TPN and Jack, right? Like they're doing their thing, and then and then yeah, yeah we're all awesome. kind of orbiting around this kind of. The, there is a lot of energy here, and I am. 
it's it is the most interesting thing that's happening right now the most interesting stuff that's happening artistically political commentary wise um uh, even and I think in terms of pushing the boundaries on some of these theories is happening in this weird place on Twitter that you and I find ourselves hanging out in and how we got to meet each other and, and got our paths cross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it, it, it's drawing yeah. people. It's drawing more and more people in too. And I think maybe five, ten years from now, I think that fascist label will disappear from some of those presses. But we'll see. You know, uh, I, I think because it is just it's getting to a point where where people can no longer ignore that all the most interesting kind of coolest, most innovative stuff is happening in this weird little corner that everybody in academia is calling fascist or, you know, whatever, far right, extremist kind of things. Uh, really weird. I guess is that how it always happens? Maybe, you know, that there's like a, a, a group of people that just kind of start doing something different and then, it's rejected and smeared and then all of a sudden it gets enveloped into what well, I guess that's what they call selling out or something, right? Like it'll, everybody will, <laughs> we get like enveloped into yeah, like the mainstream I, I mean, eventually. No, I mean, I think that's kind of how it works. I mean, I think, yeah, there's like a lot of people on our side of Twitter that think a certain way or are like very open-minded to certain ideas and um there's the other end that are like very just like okay well if we see anything we disagree with we're just going to cancel it we're um (laughs) yeah like we're like really going to like try to get this person fired from their job because of it like i mean that's happened and that happened when i was at my mfa like i watched it happen in real time kind of thing oh really professor got outed for being too white and male yeah have you talked about this before on here um i've talked about it i'm not mentioning names and i don't like to and i yeah whenever i have guests to and i always say uh for listeners listeners if you have a story or something you want to share because we can read it on the air here it'll all be anonymous send that into heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com but yeah, I always try to keep it anonymous, but yeah, I, I, I don't know all the internal details, obviously, because the universities keep those pretty under, under lock and key. But I remember the, the teacher, who was very well respected, you know, he was tenured in MFA industry, you know, like he was he was a teacher in a prestigious program, and he had many published books and, and just this entered, you know, this cultural milieu started popping up around 2016-ish, you know, post-Trump, and there was, all of a sudden, he started being called, you know, mean or disrespectful or favoring only the white male perspective, you know, like all these things, which aren't true of this guy at all, right? But like, that's what people were accusing him of, you know, it's kind of the witch accusation. They were pointing to him and saying witch, and then he lost his job over, you know, kind of really what they did to him was really kind of, they, they, they slowly first they removed cause he was tenured. So they couldn't fire him. Right. Right out. So at first he was very, he was removed from his duties as one of the MFA leaders on, on, you know, like he was removed from teaching a lot of the main MFA courses and stuff. And at first he kind of was like, begrudgingly accepted that and then they started to move to like deny him the next step in tenure you know moving from like associate to assistant or whatever assistant to associate to full kind of thing they denied that and then he appealed it and then he eventually won that but then they were giving him so much shit that he eventually just resigned from it and i think that was by design they wanted him to resign because they couldn't technically fire him you know because of the tenure protections but i mean and i know that's that's my experience with it and I know that it was happening all over the country. It's still happening all over the country and the world, really, right now. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm interested in, you I know you're not a big poetry guy. You said we were chatting, but uh, Nick Flynn, I love Nick Flynn. Um, he's, uh, I guess he does, he does fiction and nonfiction, too, so he does more prose stuff, too. Uh, but I really love his poetry. I think he's a great fucking poet. And I've, I haven't read his new book yet because it's not out yet, but I've seen some of the stuff that he's published that's coming out in that book. He got neutered by it, I think. I think they really snipped his balls. Uh, that he, The Me Too thing really, really destroyed his what, life in a what, way. What happened? With him, I'm not sure of all the details, but uh, from what I understand mostly was, you know, he was basically, he was a big hotshot writer and poet, right? And uh, yeah. uh, during the Me Too fervor, he got uh, Me Tooed for sleeping with grad students. Um, 
not raping or anything like that, right? But consensual sex, but still, they were, you know, it was all came all about not rape, but about the power dynamic, right? Yeah, it was one of those. Eventually, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, the big, big scandal with that was um, <clears throat> that he was married, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> okay. And so right. Uh, I guess his wife left him. And I don't, I think he's still teaching at Houston, um, but I think he got very much like almost lost a couple contracts on book deals. And then, of course, you know, he was so big, I'm sure he had engagements canceled you know like talks and stuff that he was probably on the book for um probably already got the check for and then i had to cancel on him because of that um and just this new stuff just is it reads a little bit like he was cowed like he used to be so bold and so fuck you and all of his poetry especially and then it kind of i mean i don't know yet because the book isn't out yet but just what i've read of it so far i'm a little disappointed it seems like he's been neutered and that i think was the goal they wanted this hot shot poet american poet to be neutered in some way you know uh yeah i mean <laughs> i mean it's happening everywhere lot, yeah like, hundreds a, of stories a lot of it, like i mean it, 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 if you want to talk about like you know <laughs> masculinity or something that wants to be neutered like it's the whole andrew tate thing that where it's Ooh, sort of like this first person to bring up tate on my pod yeah <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah, not I a guy this. who yeah, yeah. just hates stuff, but like, it's sort of like the psyop to bring it back, bring back like everyone knows he's ridiculous. Right, and I, so I, at this point too, you're he's gonna been like, caught. You're yeah. gonna like, yeah, you're gonna like entirely uh, um, discredit any point that he makes. So, like the basic point he makes, which is, you know, really kind of good which is that like you know like kind of a sort of like anti-modern feminist view which is like you know maybe men should be a little bit more dominant right in, in every aspect right so to kind of counteract the negative effects of like a lot of traditional feminism I don't know. I'm. I don't really. I don't really know enough about that. But <laughs> like, um, from how I perceive it, like it's just like, I don't know. It it seems like it's sort of the same thing. Yeah, <clears throat> especially Tate's interesting because, <clears throat> and like you said, yeah, I don't. I'm not like a fan of his or anything. Like I'm watching his videos or whatever, like paying for his courses. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. it's obvious now at this point, too, ever since he went on, like, your mom's house, like, two years ago or whatever, like, that Tom Segura's podcast or whatever, he basically admitted that it's, like, mostly an act, you know, like, he's leaning into yeah. it kind of thing, where it is, like, kind of this internet act that he's, mm-hmm. I'm sure he believes a lot yeah. of it, but, like, he is playing, it, almost playing a character in some regards, but, yeah. yeah. He, he hopes that, like, people just pay attention to, like, the clips that he posts. Right. And doesn't actually like really delve into the, some of his like deep takes. Right. He's not like, ready to They'll any subscribe books. Yeah. and they'll like kind of, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like they'll fade, they'll fade out. Like they'll subscribe, they'll fade out, and no one will care right. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how I, that's kind of how I feel about how a lot of his stuff is going. But yeah, man. Uh, listeners i know we, we've been talking a little bit but this is heavy board presents jerk shop and i'm joined again by eric at organized meat on twitter there and uh we're going to go this is the part on heavy board where we go into all things workshop workshop stories writing workshops publishing industry all this kind of stuff uh if you have something you want to share with us please send that into heavy board podcast at gmail.com we will read it on the air anonymously of course we don't want to blow up anybody's spot especially if you're currently still attending an mfa program <laughs> but it's always cool to go in there and talk about it and i always say like it's going to be negative right like we're going to be bitching and we're going to be negative but i always try to keep a little bit of positivity in it too so we're going to get into stuff here and eric's joining us <clears throat> and Eric, uh, I just want to, just for listeners and stuff, give me a little bit of your workshop background, your MFA background. You know, you, you don't have to dox yourself. You want to give program names or anything, but just a little bit of your experience in it and, uh, you know, just kind of a refresher for the listeners here. Uh, okay, so my whole academic history is 
I graduated with a bachelor's of arts in political science in 2007. And after that, I graduated um, with a master's of fine arts in creative writing and a master of uh, master of arts in English literature in 2013, I believe. Um, and that's from Chapman University, Southern California. I don't know. I yeah. I don't care if I ask myself. Whatever. But <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, those are my credentials. But I've been reading all my life, um, paying attention to politics all my life. Like, that's kind of it. Right. And you were, when you, and listeners know this, a lot of people turning into this will know this. When you're going to those grad programs, and you know, you're a college educated, you know, American basically. You're interested in those things, right? So you're keeping up with the literature. You're keeping up with them, some of the political discourse, even before everything kind of hit the fan in 2015-ish, 2016-ish with political fodder. But, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. just what it is. So Eric's been there. He's done that. He's been in and out of workshops for a while. Uh, and we're going to get into it here today, listeners. Yeah. And what I usually start this off with, and the whole reason I ever started this segment is because I had a couple listeners write in and talk about, you know, it was kind of negative emails where they were talking about workshop culture, this phrase, workshop culture, academic spaces and things like that. And I always like to ask my guests when they come on here for this, <clears throat> what is the first thing you think of when you think of workshop culture? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I can almost imagine like the person that's like writing this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, workshop culture is pretty much, they will like, it's hypercritical. So whatever story you come in with, whatever, like whether it's, um, a little avant-garde, not a little realistic, um, whatever it is you have they will come on and try to be like they will throw some theory at it uh, <laughs> Marxist theory oh yeah uh, gender theory feminist racial theory oh, yeah. uh, all the th they'll throw all the theories at it and your story will has to survive so that's um, that's exactly what I think. I like how you frame it as survival. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know, like, I know it sort of sounds more innocent than that, but like, having gone through this stuff, yeah, it it is definitely survival. You really do have to survive some of this stuff. Like, just and a lot of it really is not so antagonistic. Because you do talk to these people outside of the class, but yeah, there 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 is some sort of like you know you do have to like sort of calm yourself like you know okay, and there I'm not is take seriously like yeah. you know you just have to like really cool yourself off. And there is and, kind of an inherent tension too, like you were saying that there's there even though you're friends with these people in the social circle and stuff, and you're you're hanging out all the time, especially in MFAs. There is kind of an inherently kind of tension to a workshop circle, like, mm -hmm. and I am fascinated by that idea of like, you know, is it just jealousy? Is it just um, the way it's set up? You know, like everybody having to come there, and and you do have to, you know, you have to have critical thoughts. Like it, it I talked about this on one of the other episodes with a guest. Where it is inherently kind of it's it's meant to be critical, right? It's not meant to praise anything. So when you're putting mm -hmm. something in that workshop, nobody is going to say, "Oh, it's great, <laughs> it's great." You shouldn't yeah. change anything. <laughs> the structure mm -hmm. is that they're going to have a lot to say about what you should change, kind of thing. Yeah, and that's how it should be, really. Yeah. Um, and it it was most of the time. So I mean. There was 
there was this story that was written by uh, a girl who's she was Mexican. Here we go. And, <laughs> and it was about how she um, saw her grandmother kill, like, chop off the head of a chicken and, like, defeather it and cook it and make it part of the meal. And I don't know. There was something, like, very Mexican about it. <clears throat> like, from my perspective, not that great of a story. It was okay. But apparently there was one person who was like, okay, um, don't you think like, you know, like, cause, okay. So this, this story took place at, like in the United States, like they were like in Los Angeles and this was like an immigrant family living in the United States and they had like some sort of chicken and, but you know, they were Mexican immigrants, I guess. And so was this, girl that i'm talking about who wrote it and like the person was like well it doesn't like chopping the head off of a chicken and like gutting it and all the stuff does it make you seem like very like disgusting and like you know it doesn't make you appear in a good eye like or free you know in front of these people. Aren't you a colonizer? And, by doing... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was like, the chick was like, hell no. What are you talking? Are you saying my people are fucking like trash? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And this was, oh, it got into a huge argument. Uh, <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> and, the, and this was in the workshop, right? Like it became. Yeah. 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 And uh, like they were getting an argument and like someone had to go outside and then we went into another thing because of course these people were very liberal and they understand how to <laughs> contain this. But yeah. We had um, to have therapy sessions about it. And... Yeah. That was like one of the worst like uh, workshop things that happened. Like, oh man. Yeah, no, it was like, because it's like who was like more racist it was like right. a who was more racist right. contest yeah <laughs> it was like this is where liberalism and like that that shit eats itself so yeah the purity spiral yeah and it, it's i it is crazy and i know everybody that has sat in a workshop post 2010 has had a blow up like this happen in their workshop i've had it happen several times and i'm not even talking like undergrad or community level workshops like i'm sure that happens there too i'm talking like mfa like these are supposed to be prestigious serious workshops you know like yeah. and 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 it always devolved into this bull like this kind of like yeah this kind of a very political frame very politically framed arguments over yeah who is untouched by the impure uh characterizations of fictional character you know like, kind of like like yeah. who is yeah who is more pure <laughs> in this regard and it's i think that's it, it we i haven't gotten into super specifics on it yeah we've only done a couple episodes as regular listeners were no to this podcast but it's like there's there is this since that's become the main focus of almost all literary endeavors now uh it does distract from actually making the best work possible whereas like you said most people go into a room in a workshop they don't care what you actually wrote you know like the content of it you're telling an immigrant story great is the story any good is usually what people are going to be critiquing it on right but yeah, that's changed exactly. a little bit so it's not so much how the story how good the story or the poem is in a workshop it's how well does it adhere to this political ideology where we all have to test each other constantly with like a racism meter and like these little tiny gauges that everyone apparently just has in their head that knows um where they just you know a little dial or something where everybody's like grading each other according well how much racism was in this one mm -hmm. i don't know cutting yeah. the head off a chicken uh <laughs> i don't know isn't yeah. that racist to assume that Hispanic people living in the Southwest of America um, 
cut off <laughs> heads of chickens that they have in their backyard. I mean, like, what, like it, it does become this kind of, all right, how did we get here? You know, like it's these kind of blow ups, like, and it's really ramped up. So you, you had, and this was, you were talking, this was 2012 ish, right? Like this is happening like 2013 ish. Yeah. Yeah, Before the blow up, pre Trump, Obama, yeah, yeah, mid Obama era, yeah. <laughs> it is crazy. Like now, I, I I categorize the world now just the way I think about it as there is pre Donald Trump and there is post Donald <laughs> Trump because yeah. and I'm not even a, like I'm not even a Trump guy. Like I, I'm not like and I know like people uh -huh. on like our side of circles would whatever they want to shame me for that whatever. But like I'm just like yeah. it's like. Like that's a problem. The problem that, that this guy, like whoever the fuck, like when the fuck has a president being elected changed how we view literary, like literature and scholarship and how we set up fucking workshops. Like that's an issue, man. That's a huge fucking issue. And it's happening at the most prestigious programs in the world right now. And I am getting real sick of that, you know, like being the only thing, the only metric that's used to judge a work of art. And I'm getting... And I know I'm not the only one, you know, especially in our circles, there's plenty of people that openly say this, right? But in the larger yeah. literary world, we're the minority yeah. in terms of thinking this way, that like this is misguided. Mm -hmm. It's clouding out the actual purpose that we're here for. We're trying to create good contributions to American literature, essentially, you know? <clears throat> yeah. And like, I just get so frustrated by that. And the fact that people just take it as a given, like, oh, it's just, it's just what you, it's the way you're supposed to think about it. I'm like, no, it's fucking not. No, it's not. Like, this is made up because Donald Trump got elected. Like, but I guess what you're saying is like, and I know people that have looked into this have proved it, that, yeah, you know, it started way before Donald Trump got elected. It was kind of brewing in academia for a couple of decades before it really yeah, took it off with social media. And, yeah. 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 No, it was kind of always there. And I mean, I think like the fact that Donald Trump arrived because of it, if you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board. To get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast, become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavyboard. That's right. Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored, full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. I mean, that just reflects, like, you know, what was happening in society. Right, so, yeah. I mean, I'll... Because there were like some people that I did go to school with who did agree with me, but they were like, you know, kind of like down low. They weren't going to say anything like too publicly. Right. Like there was the, that like two year period time where people were afraid to like really say what they wanted to say or else. And for good like, reason, yeah. For, yeah. Like, it wasn't irrational to be afraid like, to say even, what you're, like, yeah. Yeah, like not not even no one famous, just right. Anyone. Um, and even the famous people, say, yeah, say, yeah. Um, and there could be some like repercussion because of that. There will be. There would have been. Like that's the thing. Is like yeah. Like yeah. that that time right. Right after it, like 26, and I, that was me starting. And I know this is weird for some listeners that aren't on Twitter, but whenever I have a guest from my circle of Twitters on, it's like, you know, they always refer to Twitter red pilling, right? Like you take the red yeah. pills. And, so, and I know that's a meme and it, it's, it's, it's much broader meaning than just, than just kind of turning away from liberal politics for the first time. But it, it's for me, 2016 was when I was starting. I was basically my first year of grad school. And, you know, in that November, Donald Trump gets elected. And then I, I just remember having, like, we had a class. And I remember, like, the day after the election, we had, like, a class, you know, of all the people in the cohort. It's a required class we all had to take or whatever. And we all shut up. And I remember that, like, we had, like, the teacher had, like, this therapy session, basically. Like, does anyone need a moment? 
like, does anyone need to not have class today kind of thing. And I just remember that was one of my first moments. I remember specifically being like, something's different about this. <laughs> like, like since when did, you know, a president <laughs> getting elected, like, 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 like make us all have to change the way we do courses the next day. Like, like, what are we, what are we doing here? Like we're letting it control our lives. Like we're letting that whoever happens to be president on every, any given day control the output of literature. Like what the fuck are we doing? Like, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm constantly frustrated and I mean, I'm not trying to get up with a definitive answer, but I mean, you know, everybody feels this, everybody in this field feels it. If you've been even just adjacent to this field in any way, you know exactly what's happening, you know, and you're not allowed to say it. You're not allowed to say it honestly. Like we can't have honest conversations about books, about honest, you know, truthful interpretations, just how somebody feels about it without this cloud of specifically liberal, or I like to say even more specific DNC politics being just forced over it. Like, uh, yeah, and I, yeah, I wonder and where that comes from. Yeah, sorry. It, it, yeah, it's a lot of the DNC politics trying to like pretend like they're like they're like oh the woke you know like they're the you know people who like want to protect free speech but they're not and I mean I don't know yeah there's there's a lot to worry about as far as protections of, uh, free speech. So, and you talked about writers, like even like famous big names, like I've been kind of disgusted at the lack of people saying something. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a few that do, there's a few that will step outside and say, Hey, like, I don't agree with this kind of thing. Um, and they're getting a lot of shit for it. I mean, Lionel Shriver, <clears throat> do you follow her at all and her kind of red pilling that she's been going on in this um, last six uh, years that we've all lived through? <laughs> Lionel Shriver, uh, she's the, the name sounds familiar. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. <clears throat> oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I do know that. That uh, I, I know the movie and I know there's a, a book. You know, yeah, yeah, not the most famous writer ever, but she's a big name in the world, right? And publishes mm -hmm. her books. She's been around for, you know, 20, 30 years. And she's writing for The Spectator now, Center Right Magazine listeners that don't know. Mm -hmm. And uh, she is just writing about how this is all nonsense. And she's one of the few that is very vocal about how, no, you don't get to tell me what I get to write. Like, you don't get to tell me what words are off limits. Like, kind of thing and she keeps making this point that i think people are, are not being honest about where she says you know five years ago nothing i'm saying would have been a controversy like nothing i'm saying would have gotten me pegged as some evil right-wing person she's like because i'm usually because i'm not you know kind of thing and she's yeah. like but all of a sudden now it is and i'm the bad guy for saying that this is wrong you know and it, it, it there is I do view it as cowardly when I see big names that could put this to bed. They could end it if enough of them stood up and said enough of this. It could it could be over. We could stop worrying about it, but they're not doing it. And it's either because they're, you know, true believers or like you said they're terrified. And not irrationally terrified either because <clears throat> You know, you will be disinvited. You will be removed from committees. You will be, you know, you will be removed from the prize committees that you're on with your prestige and all that. Like, you will be disinvited from your speaking engagements that we're going to give you a paycheck. Like, it, I, I don't know how anybody it's can difficult. deny it at this point. Like, I, 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 symp I totally sympathize with them. Like, I mean, I really do sympathize with, like, yeah. these people that, you know, they are well could tell the truth but well you know ugh. i don't know i'm getting get paid a lot by these people to keep quiet so right. i mean i really do sympathize but that's just I, I i honestly think that's part of just like you know human tragedy like that's it that's kind of what happens right. yeah right yeah i don't yeah. know if there's anything we can do about it right <clears throat> It's, uh, we're all going to go for what's most profitable, what makes us the most pleasure. And even a few, like you see, like <clears throat> when the raw doll stuff happened 
and then the Agatha Christie stuff, and then oh, of course yeah. the Ian Fleming stuff. I saw a few, a few that you were using their their prestige and their name and their power to buck up against it a little bit. Solomon Rushdie was the one I noticed, who was right away saying, "This is terrible. <laughs> don't do it. Puffin should be ashamed of themselves for censoring these old books." Joyce Carol Oates was a little wishy-washy on it. She said the Raw Doll stuff was terrible, but then she kind of defended the Agatha Christie stuff. And I'm, you know, Joyce Carol Oates is clearly super online and addicted to social media, but like it just, so she's probably not be yeah. thinking clearly. But I, I, I'm like, where are these people? You know, Brady Stanellis is very vocal about this, but of course, you know, people have always kind of rejected him for his outspokenness, so he can't make a big dent. But it is like, yeah. I am like, what? Because it does affect the field. Like, like they, they're okay now, right? But like five years from now, if nobody puts a damper on this, they're coming for Solomon Rushdie. They're coming for Joyce Carol Oates. They're coming for, you know, they're going to come for you kind of thing. Oh, they're so going to come for Joyce Carol right. Oates. Right, yeah. I, I mean, I can't wait. Like, I mean, as, and I'm, I'm someone who, like, I've read... I don't know, 60, 70 Joyce Carol Oates books. Like, I'm a huge fan. Like, huge yeah, fan. Yeah, she's good. Yeah. I mean, she is amazing. And right. there's a time where I just, like, ran through her books. Like, a good year and a half where I just, like, really ran through everything she did. Um, but I just can't see her being, like, effective as, like, like you would see her as being right yeah 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 i mean uh, like i mean that's i mean yeah that's just it like i, I just don't think she like how, how could you cancel joyce Carol right like <laughs> really like how could you cancel her i mean if you've read her works like it's gone like you know over you know decades I just don't know how someone could come with like someone who's only had works through like a couple, you know, a few years and cancel Joyce Carol Oates. And, and that's a lot of what they're trying to do right now. Yeah. I wonder what's, I, I'm calling it now. I think there's going to be a red, there's going to be like what we would call a red pill moment for a lot of writers if nothing happens, or at least there's no um, vocal movement against it, um, there's some, but not a big enough one to make a dent. But I could see that being a thing, especially after she dies, right? And um, I could see a lot of people taking that angle of we need to cancel her now, or yeah. you know, pretend her books were these horrible books or something. She wrote that no. article, right? A couple, what was that? Six months ago now, eight months ago now about the publishing industry and how we're trying to mm -hmm. kind of very gently say that she thought something that was going on that she kept seeing and was alarming to her. Right. Which is again, this kind of racial hierarchy that I always kind of bring up, uh, that didn't used to exist, but exists now. Uh, yeah. In terms yeah, of publishing. I'll enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, she's, <clears throat> and you know, people were pillaring her for it. They were, pretending she was some type of crazy racist, which no, she isn't. Um, you know, any type of thing where people are willfully being ignorant about what she's saying to, to smear her. And I'm just like, you know, you think that's not going to come for you, Joyce? Like, that's coming. That's coming. One more article like that. Just wait. Like, you know, like kind of. Mm -hmm. And she's just being honest. She's just, you know, a, she seems like just a nice little old lady, you know, a little quirky, whatever, like kind of wrote this huge body of work that she's had, you know, this huge impact on American literature and culture. And people are still pretending that she's some crazy, you know, doesn't know what she's talking about. Like, I'm like, okay, you know, how long is that going to work? Apparently it's going to work for a yeah, long time. Yeah, that's but, insane. Like yeah. people who talk like that are insane. <laughs> Joyce Carol Oates knows exactly what she's talking about. I, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter if you disagree with her or not. Like, everybody she knows, knows it. Yeah, she's talking about like. If you've been in the so industry, just yeah. listen to her. Yeah, that's all I say. Listen to her. Like, listen yeah. to Joyce Carol Oates. Listen to her perspective. 
like her perspective on feminism is not at all what like the newer perspective is. So I, I understand how some people don't understand her, but really they should listen to her. And she came up in that time. She's older. She came up like everybody wants to talk about how, Oh, there's a patriarchy, blah, blah. Like Joyce Carolos lived the fucking patriarchy. Okay. Like when she was starting out, people were literally saying to her face, you are a woman and you cannot write. Like that's what literally people Mm -hmm. were saying to her face. Like has any fucking woman in the last 40 years, like trying to be a writer, had that happen to them? I doubt it. I bet not one of them in the last 40 years has had that happen to them. But when she was starting out, I bet it happened almost every time she tried to publish something, especially some of her more raunchy or sexual stuff, you know? And, uh, I, I just, so she of course is like, I lived through this, man. Like I lived through it. I had people telling me to my face that because I was a woman, I couldn't do this or I couldn't say this or I couldn't write this. Like, and it's just these people, it's stolen valor to say that she's wrong or something. It's like, no, she lived through it, man. Like when she was born, there was one way of living. And then like half some point in her life, it changed. Right. And we had the kind of, cultural revolution of the 60s and the kind of feminist revolution and all that that we've been have that we've living in that world since mm-hmm. yeah no 100 percent. and yeah that's i mean that's why i believe like she's just like one of the greats yeah yeah that's awesome though. that's awesome um one one other thing i wanted to mention with the uh writing workshops oh hell yeah here we go uh okay so I don't know if you had the same thing with yours, but like the Bukowski, like wannabes, right? Oh, yeah. Like the people that just wanted to be like Charles Bukowski, and that's it. And that was like the end of their, like, (laughs) I I swear to God, there were like, there were like three or four in my program. I don't know if you had any any experience with those type Uh, of guys. Oh, yeah. I was one of them. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Good. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. When I was younger, I was definitely like one of those guys. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's always those. And I, I there's like, and you mean like the kind of, they don't just want to copy his style. They want to live his lifestyle. Right. Like it was like, okay, I know like, okay, you're writing poems and stuff about, um, like, fucking hookers and like you know and like getting drunk or whatever like but i know like you have never done like either of those (laughs) maybe maybe one and a half i i don't know like you seem sort of like a geek that just reads books and that's like what your personality is based off of is books that personify this image that you will not do and that was like a large part of like the people that were in some of my program. <laughs> and they were, um, was it any like incidents or something because of that? Or was it just like, they were oh, no. just like douches that nobody liked or. No, no, they were just, they were just douches that like, you know, eh, whatever, like, you right. know, they weren't that bad, but they weren't, you know, yeah. No one really cared, but it was just like, yeah, they were that type in the program. <laughs> I noticed that not necessarily Bukowski, but <clears throat> specifically, I was maybe the biggest Bukowski fan out of my cohort for most people. But then I did notice there were a lot of it was a personality type that MFAs attract a lot of that, especially art scenes attract a lot of people like this. But it was like. There was a certain type of writer that or aspiring writer at the MFA level that was like mm-hmm. wanted to be an alcoholic or or thought that that they had to be an alcoholic to be a writer, you know, like of some yeah. kind. And that can get pretty annoying pretty quick, especially if they're sloppy drunks. Um, it, it just, you know, and then everything starts to become about the same thing and just kind of look at how much I drink. That's, you know, I'm Hemingway basically because I drink this much. Like, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's not how it works, bro. But, all right, you know, like there's, there is this kind of romanticizing level to it too. 
where like it's not just people that are trying to do work there's people that just want to live the lifestyle or pretend mm-hmm. talk about being a writer talk about being a poet uh imagine themselves as the you know the reincarnation of bukowski or something or uh yeah yeah um, it's crazy i mean i think that's like what a lot of people that i was going to school with were kind of imagining themselves it was like the bukowski type and it's interesting too because i i went uh i guess it was probably like what four or five years after you graduated i was starting my mfa and there's like mm-hmm. it is crazy how much that changes where we're where, where that type specifically because it's mostly men that are attracted to that bukowski style you know more or less yeah. I'm not i've met a few women that do too but like mostly men and i think it, this kind of the anti-masculinity stuff that's happening it's tied up in all this dnc stuff that's that's used to grade everything but it is mm-hmm. like it, there's been a rejection of that more recently, I would say, in terms of like if you're somebody who wants to do the Bukowski thing, well, a lot of MFAs will put you on the reject stacked, you know, kind of as you're applying yeah. just because they view yeah. you as some type of toxic presence or. or yeah. And I mean, I like, yeah, like, I mean, I love like I, I do like that Bukowski like stack like i mean i do appreciate a lot of that so like you know there were some people in my mfa program that like did do that and like well it it at least it was authentic i i don't know how authentic you know just writing about you getting drunk and sleeping with a woman or whatever is (laughs) like I, i really i really don't know how like how like authentic that is but okay like that's your thing go ahead um but there was like something when you had to like be held to it in a writing session and i think you could kind of tell sometimes who were authentic about it and who weren't i don't know i think there's something you could see about someone who is like oh this guy got a lot of pussy and he's writing about a lot of pussy you know like you could see him and but like the other guy who's like oh i'm like you know writing about like you know sex here like sex with every woman but like oh okay dude you're like not i'm i'm not getting it right like (laughs) you know one thing i'll say the amount of adult virgins that i met when i was in my mfa (laughs) was very very <laughs> eye-opening to me like i didn't think that existed oh, yeah. beyond the steve carell comedy like i didn't think that was a thing <laughs> but like apparently that's a thing particularly in these mfa programs now <laughs> i was shocked <laughs> i knew three three that that's that's a lot right like and i mean i went i st- i was <laughs> yeah. 26 and like I, I didn't know anybody in my personal life who was a fucking adult virgin at the age of 26 you know mm-hmm. and that yeah. was just i'm like wait a minute you're trying to be a writer and you've never had sang. <laughs> i know like how does yeah. that work <laughs> how does that there there were some like it was some of those but like i i, I couldn't ask them right they yeah, ever yeah. had sex like you know like it was so weird so yeah I don't know. A friend of mine, I remember. Yeah, it was it was very odd with that that entire thing. But um, yeah, I, so with workshop stories, oh yeah, so yeah, every yeah every guy wanted to be Bukowski. I had uh, I had a friend of mine. She actually she was a guest on this podcast, and we, we were in MFA together. I remember we were sitting in, you know, one of those fucking rooms that they give you when you're in that, and then you're kind of just doing work or whatever. Like while we were sitting there, you know, I had to teach classes in a couple, in an hour or something. This is like the room you could hang out mm-hmm. in in between. And my one friend, she was, she was doing the workshop work for that week or whatever, like reading the, reading the other me- cohorts members uh, story, you know, giving the feedback and stuff, kind of going over it because she had time to kill. And I remember she just kind of scoffed at one point. I looked up from my work and she <laughs> she turned to me from across the table and she's like, ugh, 
I hate it when people write about sex who have never had sex, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) and then just started writing something on like the person's story. And I was just like, oh yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about in that room. Yeah, and it was like some. She showed me the scene, and I was like, "Yeah, like this person's never had sex. <laughs> this person's <laughs> never. Uh, <laughs> that's not how it works, bro." Uh, yeah, there was there was a lot of that in um, some of the workshops. Yeah, just like a lot of people who clearly weren't like being real about any of the stories that they were involved in. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, and we can be a little forgiving. Sure. Right. Like, yeah, because they're they're students of it. Right. So there's trying things, whatever. But yeah, it is kind of funny. Speaking of yeah. this workshop, like what, what I like to ask uh, writers when they come on here, like how does the workshop fit in to not just the MFA, but I think the larger creative writing world, because <clears throat> I, I haven't talked about it much on this podcast, but I think there is this level where you workshops are kind of a beginning level thing with creative yeah. writing and then you can eventually evolve past them kind of thing so i just like always to get writers takes on uh on things like that where, where do you think it fits or i mean i think workshops are very helpful as far as like getting some people that you know like some of their ideas but i believe it really has to be very selective so as far as like a uh, like a uh, like a college writing workshop or something like that it could be good on a level if you want to sell it to like maybe more of like a mainstream market or something like that you want to like get the general people's opinion but i really just think that if you want to publish something, if you want to write something, you should just go to your friends. Right. And, you know, like, ask them, like, what do they think? Like, and then publish it independently. I, I honestly, now I don't think that there's like any big, <laughs> like, uh, you, you, you're not going to become like the next, um, what is it, Twilight or right. yeah. whatever, right? You know, you know, like that's not going to happen. Like you publish independently and you market yourself. That's how it happens. So, um, I mean, I think anyone going through a creative writing program in college today like really has to learn about marketing. Like yeah. I, I don't think that writing is the number one thing honestly like if you're good enough to get in the program as far as writing you're probably good enough to make a story how good are you at marketing that story right and making that something that people want to read yeah doesn't mean it's good i mean yeah right but (laughs) um i you know, on, on here on this side of Twitter, like there's a lot of people who are great authors, and they have books that I want to read, and, and they successful, seem, yeah, yeah, yeah. They seem to do well. Um, they have like a lot of people who want to read it. So, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, that's my whole thing. Yeah, I, I think the workshops, and that, that's why I think it is interesting, especially when you have people that are, you know, you're when you're right out of the MFA, you still kind of believe that that's the only option. And mm-hmm. it kind of teaches yeah. you that when you're there, but then, uh, you know, you spend a couple of years outside of that world, especially cause you can't get a job usually now out of it. And, uh, you start to realize, Oh, wait a minute. Like that's one method that used to be the only way. It isn't the only way anymore, you know, kind of thing. It's cause even then, like it's, it's not even necessarily about the writing now. And this is why I always bring up that point of, regular listeners listeners will know this like the dnc rubric that everybody is pretending isn't real uh it, it it's not about just the writing anymore you know like it's not about uh when you're applying to iowa they're not just picking the things that they think are the best they're picking them uh, according yeah. to this rubric according to a racial hierarchy according to a di- diversity quotas according to um 
I would say straight up, um, I don't want to say the word hatred, but I would say straight up dismissiveness at um, male perspectives, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 it's not about that. Like, if, even if they like your story, like, well, then the very next question they're going to ask before they admit you into the school is what color are you? What sex are you? Mm-hmm. That's what they're yeah. going to ask. And then if they're going to determine how to let you in based on that and not the story, because I'm sure Iowa, sure, they get to have their pick. Everybody that gets in is good. Sure. You know, I'm willing Mm -hmm. to admit that. But it's just like now they're adding this like layer of inherently political frameworks on top of it. So they're not even being good stewards of the craft anymore. They're being good stewards for a political party. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. it just drives me nuts, man. God, I'm sorry to keep bringing it up. Someone like, because Iowa, like that was like Kurt Vonnegut's um, like workshop, right? And I mean, I like, I know I saw your clips about Kurt Vonnegut and how influential he was. Like, I mean, same to me. He's a guy. That's how we started talking, I think, right? You and I, we started talking on Twitter over that. Maybe like that and yeah, something like this, probably. Yeah. Would would not doubt that. Yeah, <laughs> like some rare, some yeah, some Kurt Vonnegut shit. Uh, he he is my favorite writer, always oh, has yeah. been, and he's always has been because like politically, like he's just always pre- like been presented as like he's funny and he's anti-war. Right. That's that's always me, you know. Right. Like. And he would always stress kind of a, not so much political party, but he would always stress the humanist angle that he, he at least felt himself coming from. He was, yeah, it wasn't like, yeah. I mean, cause he wasn't exactly like, um, entirely anti-war. I guess he felt like probably like world war two was good, but he, you know, he also questioned whether it was good at the same time. And that's what I always appreciate about him. Like he could, appreciate like both aspects and like that's just you can't get that nowadays you can't you just can't get that yeah and i think even vonnegut like he would he would and it's getting it's because this framework for politics didn't exist when he was publishing like you you weren't put into categories as a writer as this person's a Republican writer or this person's a Democrat writer. Like you weren't put into these categories because they didn't nobody viewed writing that way. And even though I would say if I had to guess, I would say Vonnegut would probably be more liberal center left if I would guess. And I mean, I you know, you're a big oh, fan. I, yeah, he definitely. Yeah, like, 100 yeah, percent. His opinions and stuff. Like I would read all that shit like hungry as fuck when I was discovering him. And yeah, definitely center left. But and like, you know, that's fine. But it was just like nobody was talking about that. And even then I I did this on the Vonnegut episode where I was thinking about Slaughterhouse-Five and how it's it's anti-war. But then there's all these sections when he's talking to the aliens and stuff about war is inevitable, you know, like, oh, you know, what do you think you're going to stop? people from fighting like kind of thing like what were you living in fantasy land if you think you're going to stop wars from happening you know like kind of and a realism so to sad. it yeah. yeah sorry that's that's what's so sad about Vonnegut is like because he realizes war is inevitable and he hates it right he hates it so much and he knows that it's inevitable and I mean that's one of those things and I think I mean going back to Robinson Crusoe um, he knows that like conquering these nations is inevitable, right? And he doesn't mean to be be malicious, but he understands that like that's just right. That innate thing in and, us that want to conquer, like that kind of innate, yeah, yeah human innate uh, thing. Yeah, we have to we have to do what's right. If we see something wrong, we got to do what's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, it's so true too, man. It's, yeah, yeah. I'm glad Vonnegut got brought into this. I'm always, I, I, you can't have the podcast where I talk about him all the time, but I'm like, yeah, everybody, all guests, just bring it up when you're on with me. Yeah. Uh, I right. mean, he, he, I mean, he made me get into writing too. So exactly. when you yeah. were, when you and I think it was Matt Wall, when I saw those clips of you and him talking about, uh, Vonnegut, I was like, oh man, 
like yeah especially for men my favorite novel uh yeah it it made me laugh like i laughed out loud so much in class i got reprimanded had to (laughs) stand outside um that novel like just there's nothing else like it's it. It's the best. Yeah. It's the best. Nobody's nothing come like close. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. People want to say Confederacy so, of Dunces. No, it is not as funny as this. Like, no. <laughs> Vonnegut. It, it, yeah. Yeah. No. Even, and the Confederacy, Confederacy of Dunces is hilarious, but not, not even on the level of Breakfast of Champions. Yeah. And he's like, and I, I think that's it's very masculine. It's very men love Kurt Vonnegut, and they love him in a way that I don't even know if women could. Like, kind of like, and I, I know that sounds sexist. I don't mean it in a sexist way. I'm saying that like he hits something that just men respond to. Like he hits that that thing that just. I, I it's hard for me to even articulate it. Like I'm trying to think of how to say it. Like it, it's it's. Hey. Would you believe there's still an extra hour of conversation left? Well, there is. And if you want to hear the full, uncensored episode, you need to subscribe at patreon.com slash heavyboard, where you will receive full, uncensored episodes like this, without any interruptions, ads, or anything else. And that's for subscribers only at patreon.com slash heavyboard. So, what are you waiting for? Subscribe today and join the conversation.